You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Think about depression or anxiety or ADHD or any kind of mood disorder or just other things. Migraines, fibromyalgia. Hashimoto's disease, all of these things, they're they're hard, they're complicated, and we have so many people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that are battling these issues. They're battling them day in and day out, and you don't even know it. You don't know that somebody, your neighbor, was just diagnosed with something. And, I mean, if it was cancer, we're all like, oh, that would be horrible. But you don't know that they were diagnosed with depression. And as uh, Sandra Turley was talking about, they're battling with just the idea that I've got depression. And they might, it might take three or four months to figure out what that means. And instead of us all just judging these people, like, oh, they're just a rude neighbor. Yeah, they never say hi. I say hi to them all the time and they never say hi. Well, meanwhile, back in the back bedroom of your neighbor that never says hi – She's struggling with migraines. She's she's not just the neighbor that's closed off and trying to avoid you. She's also trying to close off the light from her home because the light causes headaches. What if we could all be a little more accepting, a little more patient, a little more taking the place of other – um, and and trying to understand somebody before we, you know, before we judge them. What if we could have more compassion of one another and maybe walk in their shoes? Oh, that's just so soft and fluffy, Matt. Yeah. Until it's you, right? And again, for some it's depression and that's going to be their cross to bear. And for others, it's a child that gets away and is struggling. And for other, it's uh, you know somebody that that harms them in a car accident. We've all got a cross that we've got to carry. We've all got a, a cross that we have to bear. Um, and yet, in the end, and it doesn't go away. And the longer you go, the more likely you are to eventually. Receive the cross if you haven't received it yet and feel the burden of it. Um, just give everybody time. Give everybody time. And if it's not you, it could be your parents you're helping through. Which is why, you know, if as you're aging and your parents are aging, right when you finally get your kids out of your house and everything should be great and now you got money and you've got age and youth still to to go have a life with your family or your spouse, then your aging parents need care. The burden is everybody's, right? And if we could just see that everyone around us is suffering silently something and be a little slower to judge, a little slower to react, um, let's get more of our self-worth, more of our um, – sense of value from being somebody who can just care. What if we could just increase our ability to love somebody? And and it doesn't have to be soft and 
just frou-frou-y. It could also be powerful. There's there's people that you could go impact their life today if just by giving them a break, just by not having to react, just shake your head and walk away. Um, makes sense. And it's not it's not easy making it through life, and it's really not easy making it through life when everyone around you has a critique. And I sometimes worry that, you know, we're so proud of our rights to speak and freedom to speak. And we all want our freedoms, but none of us want the responsibility of also knowing when not to speak. If somebody says something stupid, you don't necessarily have to combat it. You could just let that silly idea drop and die. You don't have to beat the stupid idea to a bloody pulp. Just let it go and instead elevate the conversation by saying something healthier. Anyway, folks, we're in this together and it's not going away. We are uh, we are neighbors and we are each other's good Samaritans. So let's do what we can to elevate the game. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We are such emotional creatures, aren't we? And so some of us have just never learned how to manage these emotions. We don't know how to do it. And then, you know, we naturally just spank. We might spank our kids, but then when you bring on a national expert who's talking about children and violence, and the research shows that by spanking your children, you create children that are more aggressive and, and spank and or hurt other or hit other people. So by spanking your children, you're more likely to create people that hit people. Well, yeah, but my daddy spanked me, and look how I turned out. Well, great, fantastic. But is, what's interesting is we we are getting better as as a society in managing our emotions. Like uh, he was, Doctor Finkler was just telling us, you're we're getting healthier. There's less abuse of children, except ten percent of children annually are still abused. They are harmed with a bruise or a cut or some. Need, I mean, they don't always need to go to the hospital, but there is a mark from what how parents or others are dealing with them and bullying and things like that. So one of the things I just wanted to work on a little bit in this Coach's Corner is give you some other tools for things we can do. There's a lot of other things we could be doing to um, help uh, to, to figure out how to help people manage some of this emotion. Um, one of the things I would just suggest right out front is recognize it. We've got to learn to recognize people's emotions. When they have an emotion, that emotion is telling us something's going on inside. Now, if a bully's coming up to, to beat you up, you know, this might not help. But when you have the conversation and you see your child is quiet or maybe a little more reserved, more afraid to go to school— Notice the emotions that they're that they're sharing and exp- and recognize it. Don't react to the emotion. Don't freak out because your child's freaking out. If all of a sudden you keep reacting to your child's emotion, guess what? You are your child. So we don't need any more people reacting to each other's emotions. Let's just start recognizing it. And to recognize it, you could hold it out and say, "Okay, son, you seem angry. What's going on?" Well, you, you tell me. I can just point out the emotion you see. If you see sad, say that. Son, you seem sad. 
If you see they're happy, point it out. Man, how many how many people would love to be happy and actually have somebody notice it? Hey, you seem happy. It's And then, by the way, the minute you notice the emotion, guess what the person's going to probably do? They're going to want to explore the story behind the emotion. Oh, the funniest thing just happened. When you recognize someone's sad, you seem down. You seem bummed. What's up? Let them then explore their story. What if with our kids, instead of being angry at them because they're angry at, our, at their brother— What if we recognize, I can see you're frustrated with your brother. What's going on? And then let them explore the story. The problem is I get hijacked by their emotion. I get messed up because they're mad, I go mad, and then all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, dad's mad. And when dad's mad, it ain't going to be pretty. How do we get through this if we can't teach our kids to let the emotions be there and then from the emotion try to understand the story behind it? I call it getting real. We recognize the emotion. We explore the story behind it. Everybody has that has an emotion will have a story behind it. There's going to be a story. And if you can get the person to share their story, then that will get the emotion out by using words instead of anger and aggression. We recognize the emotion. You seem upset. What's going on? Explore the story. Let them tell their story. It doesn't matter if you don't like their story. You don't need to critique them or correct the child yet. You just need to explore the story. Inside of the story, I would attend to what the real issue is. There's a deeper need, and I call it the starved stuff, but everybody deep down wants to feel safety, trust, appreciation, respect, validation, encouragement, dedication. It's a starved need. If you basically get to the starved need, recognize the emotion, explore the story, and get down to the starved issue, the deeper issue. Because if you can go figure out if it's a safety issue, a trust issue, a respect, a validation, you're going to have some powerful tools. And then the L of get real is just to lift the conversation. Recognize what they're feeling and, and and then use the word and and then explain what you need to tell them. I appreciate. I can see that you really feel unsafe by your brother hitting you in the head with the with the golf ball, um, and you can't throw golf balls back at him. And we'll take care of your brother. And I'm sorry you I'm sorry you were feeling that way. You can correct it. Don't don't get me wrong. You don't have to just let them walk all over each other. We can correct these things, but at some point you got to have a better plan than just blowing up because they're blowing up. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, conversation. Man, if you could just go to a therapist, uh, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist, and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. (laughs) Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're, they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, just a really good listener. Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh, it's, it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's, there's these signs, okay? I call them... You don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them 
um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how to – how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, um, respirations. If you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature, they're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping and instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion. I look for misunderstanding. And I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person. Right? So if if my... If my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? I mean, last year's example of, of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about, a little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. 
near impossible. We'll take a break, folks. We've got more ideas for you, more tools. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Listen to your teachers, but cheat in calculus. Tell the truth, regardless of the consequence. And every day, give your mama a compliment. Take your girl to the prom, but don't get too drunk. Hanging out the limo. Slow dance with Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Little Macklemore and Ryan Lewis teaching us about how to grow up. Who else could teach us how to grow up but our next guest? You know, it's it's an ever-challenging endeavor, right? When you got to leave house, leave your house and... You know, take on your own bills, maybe pay your taxes for the first time. Growing up is a hard thing to do. And our next guest, Kelly Williams-Brown, is the author of the book Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easiest Steps. She joins us now live from Portland, Oregon. Kelly, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Great to have you. And this is a, a fun book, Adulting. How to Become a Grown-Up. Um, help us understand, why would you write a book on adulting? And, and that word, is that even a real word? Well, uh, it wasn't a word it until I, I made it up, um, <laughs> to the chagrin of my English teaching mother. Um, and it, it came from sort of my habit of just making jokey words, yeah. making making verbs out of nouns, you know, like, oh, I'm really busy bridesmaiding this weekend. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, the, the reason that I made it, though, is that I found that so many people don't actually feel like they're an adult, even maybe if they're in their 40s. So, yeah. Yeah. And for young people, you know, it, 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 that, that line is getting blurry. You know, legally, you're an adult at 18. You know, if you're going to school, then after you graduate, that's the first time you're really out and about on your own. So, you know, my argument is, is maybe it's not something you are or aren't. Any, you know, one point in your life, like now you're an adult, but rather it's the process of small, grown-up, responsible decisions throughout yeah. your day. Now, that's actually a great point um, because I I am pushing 47 and yet I, – and I still don't feel like a grown-up. I don't feel like an adult except everybody in my family tells me to act like one. You know what well, I mean? I, I wouldn't want to get in the middle of that particular debate, but <laughs> you know, one one thing for the book uh, is uh, I, I was a newspaper reporter for seven years, and you know, so part of me thought, well, I, you know, if I can go learn all about a bill moving through the Oregon State Senate and then explain it to someone who maybe has very little political background or understanding of how that process works in Oregon, then, hey, maybe I could also find people who are really good at keeping their houses clean or keeping their finances in order or who know what to say in social situations and interview them and sort of report on how you become an adult. But, you know, the funny thing would be, I would call someone who I really admired and really thought of as an adult, you know, someone who ran a very successful business, maybe was in their 50s, had a beautiful family, uh, sort of pillar of the community types, and they would laugh and say, oh, gosh, well, I'm not an adult. I don't, I don't know why you'd want to interview me. So, you know, it seems like nobody ever really thinks that they're, yeah. that they're there yet. You're, you're in, you've found a universal truth, apparently, right? Uh, and, 
Yeah, I mean, who knew? But, yeah, you but nailed yeah, it. We, 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 you know, I think, well, what I really think it is, is that, you know, we're, we're always inside our own heads. And whatever it is that we're not very good at, uh, you know, sort of in terms of life, we assign a very high priority to, you know, personally, it's I'm, I'm a messy person, and I work on it, but I'm, I'm never going to be Martha Stewart in the homemaking department. And, and so I assume that that is what it means to an adult, be an adult, you know, an adult always has a spotless, perfectly company ready house, whereas <laughs> someone who, you know, needed a little bit more help, maybe with their money, or that really stressed them out. To them, that's the marker of adulthood. So we're always we're always moving the target based on whatever it is that we're not quite as good at. Yeah, is it? Um, I mean, I, I feel I feel that uh, that's that's actually a perfect explanation. It's pretty much we assign the highest priority to the things we do the the least effectively. <laughs> And it's exactly. it's it really is it's because uh, I mean a lot of your four hundred and eighty eighty or sixty eight ish steps are are basically just funny things that no one would ever think about, right? What what's some of your favorites? Some of my favorites that are um, kid friendly you know, and you know Christian oh, radio of friendly. Of, of course, <laughs> um, you know one of my favorite pieces of advice is from a dear family friend named Bonnie Trumbull, who lives up here in Oregon. And Bonnie was saying, you know, when, when you're a young person and you're first out in the world, first out at that job or whatever it might be, sometimes you can feel really intimidated. You know, perhaps you've gotten an invitation to a fancy party or, you know, you're somewhere with important people and you're feeling like you shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And she said, just always remember that you all arrived on the same guest list and that your invitation is just as valid as theirs. And, you know, you can apply that to a lot of situations. If you're, if you've gotten that job that you're really, sorry about that. Oh, no, you're good. You've gotten that job. That's her calling right now. It's your friend. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, If you've gotten that job that you're really excited about and you show up and all of your coworkers are just brilliant and you you feel so nervous, well, remember that, you know, you arrived with the same invitation as them. They saw something in you that they want. Mm. Uh, Another really good piece of advice is just go ahead and clean something up as soon as it spills. Uh, And you wouldn't think that that would be a piece of necessary advice for a 27-year-old, but, you know, one of my friends was saying that throughout her day, you know, I She's brushing her teeth of, you know, maybe a little teeny bit of toothpaste splatters or whatever. She just goes ahead and tidies it up right then and there. And I was like, that's brilliant. I, I have to be 27 <laughs> before someone told me that. <laughs> you know, not that I would never wipe things up. Right. But, you know, sometimes you'd be like, oh, what? well, I'll clean it up when I clean the sink on, you know. It's so true. Whatever. But th- there really are just little things that make life easier. Exactly. And if you don't pick them up, somebody does. Is that what you did? Did you go around and ask everybody? Uh, Yes, that's exactly what I did. Um, You know, when I started with with people I knew, good family friends, um, you know, friends of my parents who I knew to be people who either were very at ease socially or, you know, really knew their way around, you know, the house in terms of being handy or – were, were wonderful hostesses or what were successful in their careers. And, but the great thing about this is that you can really ask almost anyone uh, because everyone has some part of adulthood that they're good at. So 
I, I, while I was writing this book, and it did, it was a several years long process, I would just talk to people and I would ask, oh, if there was something that you could go teach your 22 year old self, you know, not, not the big stuff in life, not the forgive yourself, you know, accept, you know, your parents for who they are, you know, warts and all that kind of thing. But like, no, here, here's how you change a tire and figure it out before you were standing on the side of the road uh, with a flat tire. And so then I, uh, I would, I would take that and run with it. Mm. And again, I think that's, it's so, it's so appropriate because there's a great quote by Carl Jung that says, um, that which is most personal is most universal. Mm And so a lot of your points are so personal. Um, there was a – in the article that reviewed your book um, uh, from the New York Times that uh, there was a great quote and I think it was attributed to you that was it, – it, um, I just lost it. Uh, basically, it was talking about, you know, it's not freaking out about um, – oh, it, it's when you open up your drawer, your crisper – and you oh, yeah. <laughs> and it so what bothers you i mean it's not just the fight with a friend that's that's one thing but it's that you you open up your crisper drawer and a foul smell comes out because you you thought you were going to go buy some kale and and cook it and you never did i'm always so optimistic when i'm in the produce section about <laughs> how many you know kind of quickly perishable veggies I will be cooking and eating before they go bad in, you know, a week. Um, yeah. And, and it's, you know, we can really take all those things as signs and rather than thinking, okay, next time I really need to either be more reasonable about how much kale I'm buying or (laughs) barring that I need to just give it a check every day or so and make sure it's not turning into that I don't know if you've ever gotten to this point in your refrigerator. I hope you haven't. But, you know, that kind of slurry. Oh, yeah. Of, oh, oh yeah. Inside, and it, it does not smell good. No. Anyway, so, you know, but we, we don't do that. We don't just say, huh, here's a problem. What can I do to fix it? And how can I maybe prevent it from happening again? We fall into this, you know, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with you? How could you let this happen? This is disgusting. No human has ever been as disgusting as you, blah, 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 blah. And then we haven't really solved anything. We've just really upset ourselves yeah, further. Right. And, and our kitchen still smells terrible. <laughs> and yet, and yet, next time you're at the store, if you've, if you've right. adulted and you're now an adult, then you wouldn't buy kale again unless you're really going to cook it. But Exactly. I still may exactly. take two or three more times creating you know, the slurry. And, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, we are never going to be perfect. You know, there's probably in some elements of our life, you know, maybe we were pretty good at them to begin with. Maybe it was something our parents really emphasized. And, and so it's, it's just not as much of a problem for us. But I think no matter who you are, there's going to be elements of life that, are not second nature and that you do have to work on and, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, as long as you just acknowledge that you have to work on them and acknowledge that you're not always going to be perfect at them. And that's, I guess, part of the growing up is maybe, you know, giving up the perfection idea. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, the quote that I love is, you know, don't let great be the enemy of good. Mm. And that's not to say that, you know, you should not strive for greatness, you know, but it's 
also means that I think to be a healthy person, it's really important to acknowledge what you are good at and what you can do and focus on that. And then if you're up against a a challenging situation, rather than deciding off the bat that you will never be able to do this or you'll never be able to do that, just thinking, no, I can, I can probably do this. Um, Let's figure it out and let's have some patience with myself as I learn this. Yeah. Great advice Uh, from again, Kelly Williams Brown. We'll take a break and come back, continue this discussion in just a couple minutes, figure out, um, you know, more great advice from Kelly and her book, How uh, Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easiest Steps. Also, you can go check out her website, kellywilliamsbrown.com. Just great insight um, that I think all of us could take into heart, right? Basic adulting. Very basic. We'll be right back, Kelly. Thanks. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. We're on the line with uh, Kelly uh, W. Brown, author of the book Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps. You can also go to her website, kellywilliamsbrown.com, to find more of her writings there as well. Um, she's, uh, she's just a fun resource to figure out how to make it into adulthood. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks again. You know, anybody that can make up their own word like adulting, I think, is the bomb. You, you know, it actually was uh, sort of a life dream to make up a word that entered the lexicon. Um, and, you know, I'm not a scientist, so uh, I, this is probably, you know, this was my best shot. This is uh, perhaps my <laughs> legacy. I, I awaited, you know, becoming a new entry in the Oxford English Dictionary. See, you're there. You've arrived. And oh, and you're yeah. still you're still writing, right? Do you have other books planned? I mean, like how to become... A senior citizen. Uh, Is that going to be in part of your life? (laughs) Well, that's probably a little bit further down the road. Yeah, yeah, give it time. I'm I'm working on my new book right now and having a wonderful time. The book is called Gracious. Mm. And I'm originally from the South, from the New Orleans area. And I think graciousness, you know, is such a wonderful, wonderful quality. And I think we live in a time when it's, you know, it's really easy to be distracted it's really easy to sort of talk about ourselves endlessly on social media, to have just quick interactions, but, but not really take the time to be with the humans around us and have that good conversation, you know, pay, pay real attention to them. So mm. I'm in, interviewing lots and lots of women and, and men, men too, but, okay, but good. a lot of Definitely, oh, a gracious man. There is nothing like it. There's nothing more wonderful than gracious and courtly man. Uh, and, and sort of examining what that quality is, and and how we can how we can bring it back a little bit. I love that, and because it is, it's like a lost art. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because it it really was something that you know would be really emphasized at home and taught in schools and. We've gotten away from that, but but people love it, you know. And and having good manners is 
it, you know, it's not about, you know, oh, at this time you use this tiny fork to stab that piece of fruit. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> right. you'll never be invited to the queen's table again. No, it's about, you know, consideration and making others feel feel comfortable and at ease when they're with you. And and people respond to it and people love it. And you, But they talk to me as though it's extinct. You know, it's just, it's the dodo bird or something. You know? <laughs> like, oh, manners are dead. And I just want to say, no, no, no. Manners is, are things that we can all learn and that we can all do. And it really doesn't, it doesn't cost a dime. It just, it takes, you know, extra attention and, and moving through your day a little bit slower. But I, I think the rewards are well worth it. And it seems like graciousness is the next step. I mean, adulthood is one thing. But that, I mean, that just means you're, I guess, self-sufficient. You're, you're independent. You're able. You're capable. But gracious almost brings a whole different spirit to it. A whole different. Now you're an adult with, I don't know, with respect. Yeah. Well, I think of graciousness as, you know, none of us really can do anything alone. You know, even if you're pursuing something solitary you know, like writing a book, uh, you're, you're turning on your computer, which is run by power that other people are making for you somewhere. And you're working on a laptop that again, you probably could not build yourself. So, I mean, humans have to interact and cooperate and work together every day. And, and so I think of being gracious and kind as really elevating that to, maybe to its highest and finest form. And, and, you know, even just the word grace is a very, very interesting word. I mean, it's very, it's, it's an ancient word. It goes back to Sanskrit. The Greeks worshipped the graces. Of course, grace is a very important concept to many religions, mm-hmm. and it's understood as, you know, sort of the light and love of God reflecting off of us as humans. Hmm. And, you... and, and, you know, that's what we show to each other when we're, when we're gracious. Yeah. I mean, that's that's brilliant. How many times has somebody not graciously received an award or – I mean, we, we kind of notice and we always joke about the um, – maybe the non-gracious way of doing it. But we don't ever highlight how to do it, what, what it looks like, what it feels like. We need solutions yeah. on graciousness. Well, and, you know, again, this is like adulting. You know, I, I am not I, – gosh, I really wish I was the paragon of graciousness, but I'm not, you know, I'm like everyone else and I can get in my own head and sort of stew or, you know, think a little bit too much about myself and and not other people. But, you know, I've gotten so much wonderful advice for this book. Uh, One of my favorite pieces is from my friend Nora, who is not, you know, I'm, I'm, speaking to a lot of women who are several decades older than me, but Nora's actually younger than me. Hmm. And Nora said, you know, when I think of someone who's gracious, I just think of someone who is always thinking about other people and not themselves. And, you know, considering how the people around them are feeling, uh, thinking about what you can do you know, to to acknowledge them and their humanity. And so I wanted to play devil's advocate. And I said, okay, Nora, but what if someone maybe likes, you know, kind of thinking about themselves and their own stuff? And she said to me, well, I guess to that person I would say, think about how many people you know in your life. Hundreds? Thousands? 
Don't you think a life spent thinking about hundreds or thousands of people would be way more interesting than a life spent thinking about just one? Mm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's not nearly as, you know, straightforward and how to-ish, but there are many, many, you know, examples given throughout the book of, you know, how, how we can be gracious just as we go through our day, simple things, just Hmm. making sure that you say hello and goodbye to everyone, Uh, which sounds so obvious, but then if you pay attention for a day, you, you probably realize that you don't always do that. You don't always greet people. You know, you, you greet someone who's coming into your home or a friend that you're meeting, but maybe you don't say hello to that store clerk right. in the morning. Or and thank I, you, you know, or yeah. Yeah, they, they deserve it. And just, you know, appreciating the things that people do for you and never feeling entitled to it. Because when you don't feel entitled to anything, then everything you receive becomes a gift. Yeah. Then it's not, yeah, you're not expecting it. It's a surprise. Exactly. You know, if if you get an invitation to a party, then that person didn't have to invite you to the party. But they, as they were planning this special evening for their friends, they thought, oh, gosh, let's have Kelly. And, and that's an honor that they want me there. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not entitled to it. And so because of that, you know, you don't critique the party in your head. You don't think, you know, of what you could have done better. You are simply really grateful that you're there. And um, that that gratitude really is is very life-changing. It changes your perspective on your day, every day. And, of course, you know, I, I, it's, I, luckily I feel like some of it is rubbing off on me, or at least some of the viewpoints that, that I'm getting are rubbing off. And, and it, you know, not only is it really make you a more pleasant person to be around, but it feels really good. You feel happier yeah. as you move through your day. And it, which that just that just changes everything, right? Now I can just enjoy my life. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you're, you're, you're not spending a lot of time, you know, when you're not spending a lot of time thinking about yourself, that means that you're not spending a lot of time, you know, criticizing yourself or comparing yourself to everyone around you and, you know, maybe being envious or trying to figure out, you know, why does this person have this and I don't, you know? Hmm. Does, um, so part of the motivation, and I guess this is probably the final question is what, you are almost, it sounds like, just learning and exploring life, and you're doing it as a writer. Is that is yeah. that what you're doing? Because, like, you, you keep talking about how you're not a pro at this stuff. You're just curious. And then you just ask people that have ideas, and you take ideas, and they feel good. I mean, some are funny, yeah. and some are some just make you feel good, but you're starting to internalize it as you go. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I've always been sort of a natural reporter, even before I was a reporter. And I'm just really interested in talking to humans about what they think and why they think it and, you know, what motivates them to get up in the morning and and what, you know, what they wish the world would know. And I I think that that ends up usually, you know, with adulting and certain 
personally, I hope was gracious, something that other people turn out to be interested in too. And I'm just lucky enough to get to, you know, enjoy, enjoy the ride as I'm putting it together. Yeah, no, it's working. It's working, Kelly. No, it really is. I love it. And I just love the idea that you're also, you're learning and, and then teaching. There's a great benefit in life to asking questions, listening to others, and then teaching what you learn. It's powerful. Kelly Williams Brown is the website. Go to the website, kellywilliamsbrown.com. And also go look for the books Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps, and her new coming uh, book that should be out, um, Graciousness. Um, Kelly, when will that book be ready? That is coming out in winter of 2017. There you go. Uh, not immediate, working yeah. on it through the summer, but um, I will definitely let y'all know Do when it. it comes We'll out. have you back. We'll talk graciousness. Oh, that would be fabulous. I should I should know much more by then. Awesome. So. Kelly, thank you so much, and, and uh, keep up the great investigative work. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, and I hope you have a wonder, wonderful rest of your day. You too. Kelly Williams-Brown, folks, and again, the book, Adulting, we all need it. In fact, we got two bo- two copies of it for Ben. And a dictionary uh, <laughs> to help him through that difficult ride. Stick with us, folks. Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives, and see the good in the world, for heaven's sakes. We just saw a bunch of it right there. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Remember your high school days when you were would do anything for a spare dollar, and you did. You might be grateful that those high school jobs are in your past, but you never know what life could throw at you. Those part-time so-called starter jobs might be all that's offered in the future. But there are definitely a few things we can learn from those part-time burger-flipping jobs. Our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to teach us five things we can do to pass the time at work and make any job more enjoyable. This, my friend, is a power office. You know, I feel very lucky to have a job that I really enjoy, and one that's waiting for me to come in every day. Everyone talks about how hard it is to find a job these days. Competition is fierce and demand is high. When we're living here in Allentown, and they're closing all the factories down. There are numerous articles about how millennials won't be able to find jobs after college. See anything on the one ads? How minorities struggle to find job opportunities. Or how large companies are laying off thousands of people. You're fired. What? I don't think it's working out, so let's just make a clean break. So, maybe we should all just start preparing ourselves to go back to our high school jobs. Just a good burger, please, and I'd like that to go. One good burger! Even with a degree, I guess you could find yourself flipping burgers instead of being a stockbroker. I think the fries are just about done. But don't worry. I believe you can be happy no matter how you're bringing home that bacon. Bacon up that sausage, boy. My heart hurts. Don't fear your future of greasy spatulas or toilet brushes. You know what they say. Pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. Yes, sir. That's one clean toilet. I think it's possible that there aren't any boring jobs out there, just boring people. So whether you're in high school trying to gain enough cash to buy those pictures at the high school dance, or you're one of the millions of Americans that have to let their diploma catch dust on the shelf and settle for a simpler life, starter jobs don't have to be the death sentence to your social life, your happiness, or your sanity. 
I channeled back to my high school days and my first jobs to come up with five things you can do to find happiness and pass the time at any job, even if it does seem meaningless. Be ambitious. Just because you're stuck behind a cash register or flipping burgers doesn't mean you can't dream big. You're starting to think big. One of my first jobs was working at a soup and sandwich cafe. For some reason, I was always assigned to the job no one wanted. Door greeter. Welcome to Klimpies. Anywhere you like. This does not bode well. That meant I had to stand alone, away from all my coworkers, and endure each frigid gust of wind every time someone opened the door. You're as cold as ice. But instead of staring at the soup stains on my shoes until the next customer came through the door, I decided to make use of that clipboard and paper I had to carry around. See, I always dreamed of being a novelist. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. So, when the business was slow, I'd flip my paper over and just write stories on the back of my evaluation papers. Usually it was just ridiculous renditions of my coworkers' lives that I fictionalized or made-up backstories of people I'd watched from a distance. But it was great. I got to practice my writing skills, and my coworkers got a little comic relief. Like I've always told you, you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Two. Make your work your play. Find creative ways to make your job a game. The job's a game. Another one of my first jobs was being a janitor at an elementary school. Luckily, I had a good friend who worked the same job as me, and we made those menial tasks some of the best parts of our day. We each had these long poles with tennis balls at the end of them to get the smudges off the floor, and we'd race them down the hall. Or we would play tag on opposite sides of the glass when we were washing windows. It made the hours tick by much faster. Three. Make relationships with your coworkers. Thank you for being a friend. These people are the people you're going to have to be stuck around for like eight hours a day. So you'd better figure out how to get along with them. Did you see the memo about this? Plus, you could probably learn a thing or two from them. My first college job was working with the media productions, and when there wasn't a game or seminar going on that we had to film, my coworkers and I would just grab a camera and start making music videos or commercials or really whatever we wanted. That's what friends are for. We learned how to use the camera equipment, different filming techniques, and which one of us looks best on camera. Four. Be competitive with yourself. On your mark, get set, go. Racing around to see how many tables I could get clean within a certain time, how many people I could convince to try a particular soup, or even how dirty I could get my apron by the end of the day. It just helps to keep your sanity. And he's got to get it back before the bell rings. Find the hidden treasures. Whether that means finding the leftover cake from the staff conference in the teacher's lounge fridge, or discovering the secret hallway that only your card can access by the media lab, or maybe meeting the old lady who gives you an extra $10 tip just for getting her a takeout box. Every job has its hidden treasures, and the sooner you find them, the sooner you can start appreciating your job and stop focusing on that burning hole in your pocket. Micah didn't realize the tip was for $500. So, if you're entering the workforce as a high school senior, or wallowing on the couch as a college graduate because of all your rejected resumes and failed interviews, I'm a failure, complete loser. Don't worry, that burger joint needs you. Can I take your order? And just remember that every job is just a stepping stone to help you reach your ultimate dream. As Jerry Rice says, "Today I will do what others won't, so tomorrow I can do what others can't." Whether you're making a stock investment or making a happy meal, just remember to smile. Happy job hunting! Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. Well, we're living here in Allentown, and they're closing all the factories down. 
You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to – I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's, it's not always that we, we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be, we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches, with, coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and, and I think happier uh, happier life. But w- there's there's certain things that have to be there. And, and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You, you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school. Or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us uh, and especially and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from – an age group and a, and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the, the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. 
and you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29 – you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage but the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce that doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25 and again if you're planning on if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married you may be you know out of the market out of the game so there's something going on, obviously, because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait. Wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. (laughs) You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage That might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you've seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that, the, that people have become more unhealthily um, attached So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not 
into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You, act, you, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage, and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's gonna. You're probably gonna slow down your path. So parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Wow. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. So if the barbershops are going away, where are you going to get your barbershop music? That's crazy. Uh, You know, rodeos, cafes, baseball are all forms of American culture that hold their appeal over time. But the all-male barbershop is one piece of Americana that is on the decline. 
here to talk to us about uh, why barbershops are disappearing and what's replacing them is Dr. Uh, Kristen Barber. She uh, received her Ph.D. from USC. She's a professor at Southern Illinois University, and her research and teaching focus is on issues of gender and social inequality. Dr. Kristen Barber, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. How appropriate your last name with the topic. <laughs> yes. You know, um, this is actually something I didn't notice until someone else pointed <laughs> out, it out. They started laughing hysterically, and I had to wait for them to be done before. Oh, that is they, so rude. Like, yeah, These people right. are so rude. You also wrote the book, Styling Masculinity, Gender, Class, and Inequality in Men's Grooming Industry. Um, talk to us about what you're finding out. I guess barberships or barbershops seem to be on the decline, um, but where are they going? Where are yeah. men going? Yes, it's, you know, it's so interesting. You know, my, my research really focuses on men's salons, but what I do is I, I unpack what we know about barbershops in order to make the case for... Um, men's salons. Um, you know, barber shops um, have been an important American institution. It's uh, a place where men have gone to congregate, to create community, um, you know, important relationships with one another, maybe just to get out of the house or play a game of chess. Um, and the U.S. Census actually tracks barber shops as um, establishments um, or businesses. Huh. And we can see that since 1992, barbershops have declined 23%, which is huge. Yeah. It's huge. Um, Where are they going? I mean, I guess it's these barbers are probably getting older and maybe retiring and just not being replaced? Yes, absolutely. So I I, I trace the um, the, um, sort of um, falling away of barbershops to both economic and sociocultural shifts. So... First of all, you know, these barbershops are really disappearing in mostly white, middle, and upper middle class neighborhoods um, where men tend to have um, younger men are interested in in, uh, stylish haircuts and and, um, are becoming more interested in an array of services like manicures um, or facials, things that barbershops no longer offer. Um, And then also um, middle-aged white men in particular uh, really want to go to a place where they feel like they can shore up their appearances in a way where they can uh, compete in the workforce. And they feel like the barbershop offers them, it's sort of a one-trick pony, and only offers them a particular haircut, a, a I, I, I don't know, a, a two on the side and a four on the top. <laughs> um, and, and so they feel like they can get more, more style and, and more personalized haircuts at hair salons that um, are appropriate for them. And and in uh, one of the books you cite in your article is was from TV host Melissa Harris Perry, who talks about barbershops in the African American community and the Black communities. They're still they they're thriving. They still create a major part of community. That's right. That's right. So when we talk about you know how barbershops are sort of disappearing, it is important to ask where where this is happening. It's not happening in all communities, and so the barbershop remains a very important um, institution in Black communities. And, um, you know, for all the nostalgia around barbershops, um, there is very little research on it. And that that does exist is on black barbershops. And they really, scholars are really interested in how black barbershops um, serve a a key role in the community. So barbers are often mentors um, to young men in the community. They might give loans out um, to young men trying to start their own businesses. Um, and they're places where um, young boys come with their fathers and become sort of socialized into, into manhood. Um, and they're also places, and I think this is key and helps us understand why they are still in black neighborhoods, 
is that they're places for the engagement in racial politics. So they're places where black men can talk about, um, you know, uh, racial politics in the uh, in their communities and in the United States at large. And um, and so they become very important community resources where they can create friendships with one, with one another, but also create a sense of um, community in their um, in their neighborhoods. That is. It, all, it makes me nostalgic thinking how much you may be losing. I remember going to the barber where you could get a haircut for a buck and then eventually got up to five bucks. And it was – but it was it was still a bunch of barbers, but there was, there was a sense of community. Um, how powerful for the black community. Yes, yes. And so I, I – you know, as I talk to people about the, um, uh, the hair salon, you know, um, they're really interested in, does this mean we're losing something in, in other communities? In, in white, well-to-do areas, are we losing something that's important um, to, to men, especially in, in a society where men might not be encouraged otherwise to create intimate relationships with one another? There's sort of a, a stigma around um, men creating intimate relationships, and we have this idea that men... Um, you know, don't get it as emotionally attached or that we encourage men to suppress sort of emotive expression. Um, and, and so um, uh, one uh, scholar who studies men's relationships says that men really tend to form side-by-side relationships where they'll do things together, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're creating intimate, confidential relationships mm. with each other. And so the barbershop has served as one place men tend to do this. And it was men... On men, uh, historically, I guess, right? The barber was typically a male. Yes, yes. And, and that is changing as well. Um, you know, more women are becoming um, barbers yeah. um, and opening up their own barber shops. And so this, you know, this dynamic, um, uh, you know, gender relations in the barber shop uh, are changing. They're shifting. Do, do, do you notice a difference between how much a man opens up to a man versus a female barber? Yes, you know, in, in my research, you know, I'm looking at um, men's hair salon shops, um, but the, uh, there are women barbers in these right. um, places, as well as hairstylists. Um, and, and the men talk a, a lot about how important it is for, um, for them to build close, intimate relationships with these barbers. It's a, it really is an interesting thing because I think of the personal level of the relationship where they're clipping your nose hairs there. Yes. And now, I mean, back in the day, I don't ever remember going to a barber where they were willing to wash your hair, but I'm sure they would have. Um, but they will clip your nose hair. Yes, yes. You know, as I spent time in men's salons, it was funny because I would see men sitting in these chairs after their haircut and they would have you know, sticks of wax sticking out of their nose and their ears <laughs> waiting for them to dry so the stylist or the barber could yank it, yank <laughs> it out of their nose. And, uh, and the, the women that I spoke to who work in these places talk a lot about how important their role is. They, they say, you know, people often think of us as just hairstylists or just barbers, but we play an important role in these men's lives and we create... You know, we, we act as confidants. Sometimes we act as therapists right. to men who might not feel like they can go elsewhere. Um, sort of, they, they say they're underpaid therapists, um, cheap therapists. Um, um, but also they provide intimate t- touch, right? That yeah, they feel right. like people need touch. 
And if we live in a culture where men are stigmatized for for touching each other and they're maybe not allowed to have intimate touch with anybody outside of their marriage, um, that they can come to the salon and they can be touched. They can have, you know, a woman in particular shampoo their hair, you know, dig their nails into their scalp, you know, ruffle their hands through their hair while they're blow drying it. You know, they get um, uh, scalp massages at these high-end hair salons. Mm. Um, uh, their face gets touched. Sometimes they get a shoulder massage. And so these are important places um, where, you know, men are getting a sense of human connection. And this is a way that hairstylists and, and barbers who work with men um, at these high-end places make sense of and give job satisf- uh, get job satisfaction out of the work they do. Well, and that's, that's like the high-end uh you know, places it sounds like. But what about just the average kind of corporatization of barbering where you're kind of in and out for your $11 haircut and you might not be getting all the benefits of the touch and the intimate touch, but you're getting more just, you're just on a conveyor belt. Yes, yes, exactly. Places like Supercuts or Great Clips, Sports Clips. Um, I've actually tried to um, research these places, and I've had a, a difficult time um, accessing them. Um, but when I talk to stylists who work in these places, what's so interesting is there really is an emphasis on turning the customer around quickly. So they don't charge as much for per customer, but they want to see more, mm. right, um, to sort of make up um, for the, the money that they're not getting by charging the amount that they might charge at a high-end um, hair salon. And so... Um, they actually operate by corporate rules to get men in and out of their chairs in maybe four to six minutes. And so you end up spraying men's hair down instead of giving them, you know, shampoo. I think you can buy a shampoo at some of these places. It costs you a little more. Um, And and so, you know, really um, these high-end salons, um, by by charging more, um, they're not offering these sorts of experiences to a lot of men who are sort of priced out of that market. And let alone the sense of community, because, you know, you feel like you're a number. Let's just get out of here. Yes, yes. And, you know, I understand some people want that. Some right. people are just sort of in next. for a quick haircut. <laughs> yeah, next. They, you know, they don't necessarily want to talk to their stylist. Um, but the, the men in my study are really, um, they're interested in a really stylish haircut, um, but they become really attached to their stylist or their barber as well. Um, These are people they see every six to eight weeks and sometimes for 12 to 14 years. Mm. Um, And most of the time they become attached to a stylist rather than a salon, which I think is interesting. And they might follow the stylist from salon to salon as she jumps around um, or he jumps around, although there aren't as many um, men in my study. Um, And so they become attached to um, these stylists. And on one hand, you know, the men are really getting something important, right? They're getting a a sense of relationship, um, a sense of closeness that they might not get elsewhere. Um, But this uh, this may or may not be the case for the women who work in these places. Some of them create relationships and friendships with their um, clients, but others understand that this is just part of the job. Caring for your customer is part of what's expected. Um, when somebody sits down in your chair. You bet. We're speaking with Dr. Kristen Barber, uh, who is a professor at Southern Illinois University and author of the book Styling Masculinity, Gender, Class, and Inequality in the Men's Grooming Industry. We will take a break, come back, and continue discussing her Conversation.com article, Goodbye to the Barbershop. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 
and a two and a three. Ba boom boom boom. Baby on board, how I'm adored. That sign on my car's window pane. Welcome back, friends. A little Homer Simpson for you. The barbershop, you know, once the barbershop goes, then the barbershop music's going to go. Man, what's happening to this country? Joining us, uh, discussing an article she wrote in theconversation.com is Dr. Kristen Barber. Kristen is a professor at Southern Illinois University, and her research and teaching focuses on issues of gender and social inequality. She's the author of the book Styling Masculinity, Gender, Class, and Inequality in Men's Grooming Industry. Thank you so much, Kristen, for being with us. Thank you. So are we losing, when we say we're losing the barbershop, are we losing that, especially, I guess, in the white community is what we were talking about, middle class, white, uh, middle to upper class white community. A lot of them are going more to stylists. Are they getting the same experience out of a stylist that they do a barber historically? You know, they're not. Um, these are places, you know, so what's so important to understand about these sort of high-end men's salons is that they want to take the nostalgia from the barber shop and build it into men's experiences. So they do consider themselves sort of sex segregated or what sociologists refer to as homosocial spaces. Um, so that they take from the barber shop. Um, but most of their employees are not men. Um, and uh, they're, they're often women, women um, cosmetologists and women barbers. And so it doesn't create the same sort of um, uh, sex segregated community. But what I argue in my book is that that's not always a bad thing. Sex-segregated spaces are really important for men to build relationships with other men, but they can be problematic as well. Mm. Research on fraternities, for example, um, you know, show that there's a lot of um, uh, misogyny and homophobia that circulates in these places. And so, um, and so these sorts of um, hair salons sort of break away um, from that as well. Um, so they try to take that sort of sex-segregated aspect of the barbershop, and they sell that to men as part of the nostalgia, right? They're like, okay, we are new places. We're salons, but you don't have to be afraid of going to the salon because we're similar to the barbershop in that only men come here. Interesting. Because I, I look at it, I, my parents were divorced, so my mom would give me the $5 and tell me to walk up to the barbershop. And I would sit there, and there were nine men and one woman, barber, female barber. And, but I would, it really was an experiment in life to hear what was being talked about. And um, it's funny, because then I walk into these other places, uh, Sports Cut, whatever place, franchise, or bikini cuts, for heaven's sakes, and I don't seem to relate there either. It's I felt like I didn't know where I fit in. Yes, yes. That, I mean, that, that is a problem. You know, not all men feel comfortable in these, these salons. Um, and so I talk a lot of, in my book about the ways in which the salons try to make these places comfortable for men. Um, so, for instance, instead of calling it a hair salon, they might call it a men's grooming environment, hmm. uh, right? So there's, yeah. there's sort of a, a recoding of the salon to to try to entice men into these places. Um, and they provide beer, um, but they don't provide Bud Light. You know, they provide Heineken or Guinness or imported <laughs> big beers, right? Wow. These are yeah. high-end spaces. Um, and, and they have, you know, men's magazines, um, they have, um, you know, bar snacks. They have televisions for men. 
Um, but but it is it is a completely different environment, um, and you have to be seeking something different than than men who go to the barber shop seek. You have to be seeking um, a personalized haircut. Um, you have to not be attached to that idea of um, a homosocial community. Um, and they also, you know, these salons really rely on the women who work there to make these comfortable places for men. The women uh, do a lot of education. They educate men right. on um, what a quote-unquote, you know, stylish haircut looks yeah. like, um, on the benefits of a scissor cut versus a clipper cut, which you might get at a barber shop. Um, and they educate men on how to apply product, how to talk about their hair. Um, and they try to really make these men comfortable. And in some of the more colorful examples that I heard, um, one stylist told me that she had um, a, a client come in for the first time and she had him change into his smock. And when he came out of the back room, he was wearing only his smock, <laughs> um, right, as if it, as, as if it was a, a, a robe at the doctor's right. office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she had to, you know, she had to tell him, okay, you, know, you can wear your other clothes and please, <laughs> and please do. <laughs> How um, funny is that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is. It's so foreign, it seems like, for so many of us. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think women sort of take these places for granted. You, you grow up in hair salons and, you, you know, you understand how to move around the space, how you're supposed to engage with hairstylists, you know, what topics are on the table, and how to use hair products. And so there's a lot of work that the women at these salons do to make men comfortable in the places. Um, and so I focus a lot of on my book on the education or re-education of men and the recoding of these salons, so that the, you know, uh, calling manicures hand detailing. Um, wow! As if, right, as if yeah. they're working on a car. Right. Um, uh, uh, you know, and they do a lot of you know they talk men into manicures as as a way to you know compete in a white collar workplace. Um, or as something that women, right, um, women might want to see a romantic partner is not going to want, you know, you to have ugly toes and nails. Um, and so they do a lot of work making sense of these sorts of services for men in a way that they hope is palatable to them. When did that take over? When did manis and petties become, and waxing become more, uh, I guess, gender neutral? Yes. You know, barbers actually used to offer manicures. Um, they used to have manicurists um, on site, and so men could go in for their haircut huh. and their, you know, straight razor shave and a manicure. But those sorts of services fell away, um, and we really c- came to associate them culturally with women instead. Right. Um, and so it is just recently that these hair salons are, are saying, okay, well, this is something men can and should Part, you know, partake in it as, as well. Um, but the important thing is, is that they feel like they need to really redefine these services and these products as for men only, so that they, so that men feel like they're doing something different from their wives hmm. or their girlfriends when they come into these places and they get a manicure. They're not getting a manicure like their wives. They're getting hand details. Yeah. <laughs> Right. We're detailing your hands. Yes, yes, and it's for work, right? Instead of right to to look good, it's not to show off, right? To people, I'm not getting you know um, uh, acrylic nails by any means. It's interesting because I guess back in the day, barbers used to pull your teeth, and they were, they probably were the only ones that had nail clippers. You know, way back in the day, I guess they had all the instruments, so they would take care of it all. You just would go in and like a car and get a tune up. Yes, yes, and barbers were surgeons, right? That's right. where the, the, the red um, 
came from on That's the right. barber poles from bloody rags. And so, you know, barbers have a really long, really interesting um, history in the United States. Um, and, and it is important to understand that they aren't, you know, um, they, they aren't completely falling away, but there is a, a sort of move in, in white, middle, and upper middle class um, communities towards um, salons, especially in an economy where white-collar workers might feel like they're replaceable and where, you know, um, aesthetics or, you know, your appearance is attached to, you know, professional com- uh, competence. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in the very word like metrosexual kind of grooming and attention to grooming, that's, that seems like a relatively new idea. It is. It is. It actually um, was coined by Mark Simpson, who's a um, British journalist, um, in the ni- in I think 1994, hmm. but it didn't really catch on until recently. So when I started my research, the metrosexual was really kind of this this booming um, booming concept, and it was a way to uh, make sense of a new market that was emerging. That men were beginning to develop a consumer identity that was rooted in in the purchase of of fashion and beauty services. So that you, you know, in a in a an economy where it becomes more difficult to, you know, um, stake your claim in manhood through your work, um, as more men are laid off, <clears throat> excuse me, they can purchase a sense of masculinity in these places, right? That as if we redefine manhood as something you can purchase, then it becomes more easily available. Mm. Because it seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong, that women still are uh, the, the major purchasing power uh, than, than, than the average man. And this may be giving more power back to men as a purchasing power. Yes. So uh, the beauty industry is a, a multi-billion dollar industry. And the men's grooming industry has sort of a subsector of it, which I think is interesting to sort of separate that out is uh, about worth about $6.4 billion and growing, and it has grown through the Great Recession. So, um, so even as men are tightening their purse strings, um, so to speak, they are, um, they're still spending money um, on, uh, on, on products and on services um, to shore up their appearances. And I think that it, it really comes down to what a great job, um, you know, uh, Beauty product uh, manufacturers are doing tying the purchase of colognes and and other sorts yeah. of um, products to manhood, right? So even when you go into Target, right, there are men's products are exploding, um, and there's even with um, Old Spice, which has been linked to you know among younger men, they sort of think of it as something that maybe their fathers or their grandfathers used. Um, something for old men, it's becoming redefined as something that young men um, can buy, that it's hip again. Uh, mm. so there's a lot of money that's being poured into marketing these things as for men um, in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And I mean, acts, body sprays, yeah. lotions. I have kids now that can't leave without their body spray. <laughs> and I'm like, you really, they need it really more when they get home, not when they're <laughs> yeah. leaving. Right now they smell good. In a while, you're not going to smell so good. It's uh, it's so powerful that – and I, I guess to kind of wrap it up, I love what you were telling us about um, kind of the the homosocial environments and how they, they can be – it could be a great place to tutor and educate 
men in understanding themselves, but also in understanding the power of the inequality of women. But if we're not careful, like the fraternity example you gave, those environments also could just keep, you know, perpetuating stereotypes. Absolutely. They can become toxic in many ways. Um, and this is not, you know, this happens in men's salons as well. If men feel entitled to the labor that these women stylists are doing yeah. um, as well, right? So men don't just drink a beer at these places. Women fetch it for them. Uh. And they, they laugh at their jokes even when they're not funny, right? They're sort of a, a service as servitude that we can slip into if we're not careful. Yeah. Oh, Interesting. Interesting. Well, Dr. Kristen Barber, thank you so much for your insight into the, uh, I guess, the the fading barber industry. Thank you so much. Interesting stuff, folks. When you think about it, you, uh, where are you in all of this? Do you miss the old barbers? Do you miss the old barber chair? And are you into this the new uh, grooming opportunities? Fun stuff. We'll take a break. Continue the discussion when we come back. Welcome back, friends. With Fortune Cookie Song in celebration of Fortune Cookie Day. The Fortune Cookie, you're taking your life into your own hands when you unwrap that plastic paper off of the fortune cookie, you break that cookie, and then you pull out the fortune, you have no idea what you're setting yourself up for. I think there's more danger in the cookie itself, breaking your tooth on that thing. I love fortune cookies. You love the stale cookies. I love the stale cookie, but I also love knowing that, hey, this the wisdom of ancient uh, cooks in the back of this uh, Chinese restaurant They've put together something magical, and it's copyrighted. Do you remember the best fortune you ever received? Yes, and I carried it with me um, for years, waiting for it to happen, and it never happened. Hmm. But I, I don't want to say what it is, because, but it was basically that I would be filthy rich. Didn't have anything to do with a lumberjack? Not a lot of lumberjack fortunes. Haven't had those. No. Sorry. You want to hear some really rotten fortunes? Yeah, let's hear them. Okay, so you're going to have some new clothes. <laughs> That's a great fortune. Or how about maybe someday we will live on the moon? Hmm. Maybe. So that's kind of a fortune that they're not committing to. Right. They couldn't go all in on that. Here's another one. Okay. Don't panic. Oh, that's scary. Isn't that the number one thing you don't do when you don't want people to panic right, is like, say, don't no, panic? Why, why am I not panicking? Why? That's okay. scary. And then you talked about wisdom, one last one. In youth and beauty, wisdom is rare. Totally true. I kind of resent that because I'm You're beautiful both of those and things. Young. Well, I, I'm all three of those things, actually. And wise. Yeah. Yes. I see more of the beauty and the youth in you. I mean, I see wisdom. Don't get me wrong. But you just you just ooze, ooze beauty. It's also Positive Thinking Day. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? I don't want to know what you got to do. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. What do we do? That's really good advice from a fish. Dory, Dory is that her name? Dory. 
Dory. Not Dora. Dora the Explorer. Hey, it's also Defy Superstition Day. Yeah. Are you very superstitious? I'm not. Knock on wood. I'm a little superstitious. I'm, uh, as Michael Scott said, I'm more justitious than superstitious. Are you superstitious? No. No, but I, uh, I'm a little OCD about some things, but that's different, I guess. Yeah, that's just a clinical diagnosis. I'll lock all the doors, then I'll do a double take to make sure that they're locked, and then in my mind I'm thinking, those doors aren't locked. And then I'll go back and check them one more time. Yeah. Yeah. That's not superstitious. That's super annoying to your spouse. She can't take it anymore. Hey, uh, we've got a crazy story here. A 49 year old from northeastern Germany lost his temper and he inflicted damage on his adversary's car with the only thing that he had in hand an 11 inch long sausage. While authorities give little details about the incident, they confirm that they are pursuing charges of verbal abuse against the 49-year-old and a 47-year-old, both male. And in the case of the 49-year-old, they're also investigating a charge of property damage after they found a one-inch dent on the other man's car, which was inflicted by an 11-inch long sausage. The whole thing was a fight over a parking spot. You know, the video is pretty funny, but unfortunately, we can't show the video. because yeah, it's radio. And since it's radio, I, I'm just curious to know, would you even know what it sounds like for a sausage to bounce off a car? Oh, sure. You I, would. I've been in fights with people, you know, wielding a sausage before. Okay. Well, why don't we play a little game? Okay. I'm going to play three different sounds. All right. You tell me which one is the sausage <laughs> hitting the car. Okay. The sausage hitting the car sound. Choose... Here we go. Sound number one. That sounds a little. That sounded a little rigid. That sounded too hard. That was more of a brick sound. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Here's number two. Hmm. That sounds like it possibly was a sausage where they broke the casing, and the innards, highly liquefied, apparently came out. Uh, Let's hear the third sound. Okay. <laughs> Definitely the third sound. The third sound is the sausage sound. The third sound? Yeah. You lose. You get nothing. Good day, sir. Wow. That was incorrect. It was actually number two. So the casing did break. Oh, it's broken. That's how they left a one-inch mark in the middle of the car hood. Wow, I was off on that. The third sound. Hey, let me hear the third sound again. I don't know. That's a casing intact. That, sound, that sounds like sausage was popping out of somebody's mouth hitting a car. Yeah. Or it was popping into the mouth. Yeah. And it was a squeaky sausage. Are we talking squeaky sausage or are we talking Is there squeaky sausage, sausage or just squeaky cheese? I don't know, but have you ever had squeaky cheese in your sausage? Oh, that sounds really good. Sounds really good. Heat that bad boy up. Mmm. Matt like. Uh, so the guy's going to face fines now because of the sausage dent. Who'd have thunk that 11 
inch sausage could actually dent a man's car. But when it hits like this, it's got to make some impact. Yeah. Thousands of sausages were harmed in the making of that, that little segment there. Poor Jeff had to go chase down sausage all yesterday just to figure out when and what it sounds like. Hey, uh, we will uh, take a break. We got a great hour coming up next hour. We're going to be talking about, uh, well, with our great friend Ron Hager, about this new kind of trend of e-cigarettes and vaping. I guess they're the healthier way to smoke, right? The healthier way of getting nicotine in your body? We'll see. We'll see. Stick with us. Fun stuff just ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show.